So reading from John chapter 20, starting at verse 30. I happen to be reading from the NIV, but it makes no odds. Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book. But these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. Afterwards, Jesus appeared again to his disciples by the Sea of Galilee. It happened this way. Simon Peter, Thomas, also known as Didymus, I always think that's a funny little name, Nathaniel from Cana in Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, I want to say Bong there, and two other disciples were together. I'm going out to fish, Simon Peter told them. And they said, we'll go with you. So they went out and got into the boat. But that night they caught nothing. Early in the morning, Jesus stood on the shore, but the disciples did not realise that it was Jesus. He called out to them, friends, haven't you any fish? No, they answered. He said, throw your net on the right side of the boat and you will find some. When they did, they were unable to haul the net in because of the large number of fish. Then the, G the disciple whom Jesus loved said to Peter, it's the Lord. As soon as Peter heard him say, it is the Lord, he wrapped his outer garment round him, for he had taken it off, and he jumped into the water. The other disciples followed in the boat, towing the net full of fish, for they were not far from the shore, about a hundred metres. When they landed, they saw a fire of burning coals there with fish on it and some bread. Jesus said to them, bring some of the fish you have just caught. So Simon Peter climbed back into the boat and dragged the net ashore. It was full of large fish, 153 of them. But even with so many, the net was not torn. Jesus said to them, come and have breakfast. None of the disciples dared ask him, who are you? They knew it was the Lord. Jesus came, took the bread and gave it to them and did the same with the fish. This was now the third time that Jesus appeared to his disciples after he was raised from the dead. Now you could be forgiven looking at the four different Gospels for thinking that there's an awful lot of gaps and discrepancies and even some apparent contradictions in them. And this is particularly so when we look at the post-resurrection narratives, those times when Jesus appeared to his disciples. In Matthew's Gospel and in the original text of Mark, Jesus seems to just appear to the women who went to the tomb and instructs them to tell the disciples to go to the mountain in Galilee. Although there is a, an anonymous later addition to the, of an extra 10 verses to Mark's gospel, possibly added by a scribe who was copying it later, but all the early manuscripts end at that point. 
But the, this uh, addition does go on to expand somewhat, uh, makes a passing reference to Jesus encountering Cleopas and his companion on the Emmaus Road, which is recounted for us only otherwise in Luke's Gospel. And in that little addition to Mark, it also makes a brief reference to Jesus appearing to the rest of the disciples in the upper room, something that is recorded for us by both Luke and John, but not by Matthew. Luke's gospel makes no mention of anybody going to Galilee. And only John tells us about Peter and John going to, the, to the, see the empty tomb or about Thomas's doubts. And this fishing trip that we've just read about is not mentioned in any of the other Gospels, nor the subsequent conversation between Jesus and Peter, where Jesus asks Peter if he loves him. And you might wonder why there are these conspicuous inconsistencies in what we claim to be the inerrant word of God, the Bible. But the, actually, the answer is quite simple. Each of the gospel writers has a different perspective on the story. Um, each of them is looking at it from their own point of view, but also for a different audience. If I hold this up to the screen, I've just pulled this out of my wallet and this is an off the cuff thing. I could ask you what you see and probably you'd all say a £20 note and I would agree with you. But if I asked you what else you would say, see, you could say, I see Queen Elizabeth. But I would say, I see Adam Smith. But we're both looking at the same £20 note. And it's the same with the gospel stories. Each of them is looking at it from a different point of view and writing for a different audience. Mark, for instance, the first gospel to be written, he was writing for Gentiles, uh, a predominantly Greek and uh, Macedonian uh, audience who hadn't been there in Galilee when Jesus walked the earth. They'd come to faith through the teaching of Paul and other missionaries, and they needed the backstory. They needed to know what led up to this death of Jesus that led to their salvation. So Mark was writing for them uh, because they would have been unfamiliar with the, the events of Jesus' life. Matthew, on the other hand, was writing for a Jewish audience uh, who were around. They'd heard the stories. Some of them had witnessed Jesus. They'd heard him preaching. Um, but they also had got their Old Testament heritage and they wanted to know how Jesus fulfilled those messianic prophecies in the, in the ancient writings. And so Matthew was writing for their benefit. So he makes more references and quotes more Old Testament uh, scripture. Luke was quite completely different. He was not an eyewitness to the events of Jesus' life. Um, he came to faith later. But for some reason, he deemed it right to put together a detailed chronological account of the life of Jesus, starting right before his birth with the events that led up to that. Um, he addresses his book, his gospel, to dear Theophilus. Many uh, people think this is just a, an individual named Theophilus. But if you break that down, Theophilus, Theos, God, Philus, brother. It's actually brother in Christ. 
and perhaps he was writing not just for one but for, for lots of people and just addressing them to brothers but he was writing to a wider audience and Luke having not been there goes back to the original sources and has clearly spoken to people you know how else would he know some of the details that he recounts people must have told him their bit of the story and he's pieced it together but he's only pieced together what he's got from the people he's spoken to not to the others that he hasn't spoken to and then we have John and John's gospel is quite different it's not arranged in chronological order like Luke's it's not a synopsis of the life of Jesus as the other gospels are referred to it is almost a theological treatise it's the sort of thing one of my sons might have had to write at Bible school um, John is setting out to prove by example that Jesus is the Messiah and we read those last few verses of John 20 uh, verse 30 where he says these things are written so that you know there's lots of other things I could have told you I'm paraphrasing now but I've told you this so that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ and in him find life so he's writing for a different purpose anyway that's just to explain why, because otherwise, if you look at the, at the Gospels, particularly after the resurrection, you think they're not telling the same story. You know, they haven't got their act together. But actually, I think that's a better proof of the truth of it, because if this was made up, they'd have all got the same story, wouldn't they? But in, in, in fact, they're just telling what they saw. Anyway, there we go. That's, a, that's by way of an explanation. Anyway, uh, Matthew doesn't have uh, the, Jesus appearing in Galilee, in um, Jerusalem, but tells about them going to get to uh, Galilee. But it's clear from uh, Luke's gospel, you, you can see now, I've lost my place in my notes. Um, we can see from Luke and John that the disciples didn't go straight to Galilee to meet Jesus on the mountain, as, as Matthew re recounts. But they stayed in Jerusalem for at least eight days because Jesus appeared to them on that evening of the resurrection. And then eight days later appeared again in the upper room. And it's only after that that they must have made that long journey north. That's nearly 100 miles, uh, probably to Capernaum on the shore of Lake Galilee. And that's where we come to John chapter 21 with the disciples. They're no longer in lockdown in Jerusalem, back in Galilee, and apparently kicking their heels, wondering what to do with themselves. And they decide to go fishing. They haven't seen Jesus in a while. You know, he told them, <laughs> come and see me. You know, he'd seen them once in that upper room, seen them in the upper room a week later. They'd gone to Galilee, as he'd said. No sign of him. What do we do? Oh, let's go fishing wait and see what happens and then Jesus turns up they decided to go back to that their old way of life their old normal and then Jesus appears and he repeats the first miracle when Peter was called a miraculous catch of fish and through that Jesus makes it plain that now there is no returning to the old version of normal life for his disciples. And I find myself wondering, as we wait 
and long for the lifting of our lockdown, whether we too are being called by Jesus to a new version of normal life. In some respects, perhaps similar to the old one, but in some ways radically different. It will be a new normal for us, just as it was a new normal for those first disciples. From everything I hear, it seems like this coronavirus is likely to be with us for quite a bit longer, uh, that it's not going away anytime soon, and it may come back again and again, perhaps every winter. And it seems that at least until a viable and stable vaccine can be created, we will have to live our lives quite differently to the way we've lived in the past, perhaps with some ongoing restrictions on travel and limitations on public gatherings for some time to come. It may yet be several months before the church can resume gathering together in one room, particularly um, as the community centre is you know, like effectively a pub or a club or a bar, and they may be amongst the last to get restrictions lifted. So we may not be able to carry on as we have done in the past for a while yet. And even when we are able to do that, it may never be quite the same again. We may have to all sit two metres apart for a while. What about Jesus and the disciples? Well, John's Gospel concludes with a freshly cooked breakfast of fish on the shores of Lake Galilee. Jesus then goes on to have that conversation with, with Peter, reinstating him as the leader of the group. But then it ends, there's nothing more in John's Gospel. But Luke picks up the story again in the first chapter of the book of Acts. And there we find all of them, all of the disciples, back living in Jerusalem. We're not told from the narrative whether Jesus appears and disappears, as he had previously, or whether he stayed there continuously with them. But one day, Jesus leads them out to the Mount of Olives, which is a walk of about half to three quarters of a mile outside the city wall. That's where he gives the disciples the great commission recorded for us in the last few verses of Matthew's gospel to go into all the world, to, pre to preach the gospel, to baptise, to teach the new disciples, to, do, to obey everything that he's taught them. And then Jesus ascends into heaven. And then it seems that the disciples go back into Jerusalem, back to the upper room and back into lockdown. In that room where six weeks earlier they'd eaten the Passover meal with Jesus that we've celebrated this morning in communion. All of this is a long way of me getting to the key verse for our text. Because Acts chapter 1 verse 14 tells us that during that period of nine days between the final ascension of Jesus into heaven 
and the day of Pentecost, the disciples all joined constantly together in prayer in that upper room, along with several others, including a number of women uh, and the brothers of Jesus. Quite a large group. It must have been a big room because we're told there was a group of about 120 believers in all. All joined together constantly in prayer. Praying together, waiting together, as Jesus had instructed them for a further 10 days until the coming of the promised Holy Spirit at Pentecost. And on that day, they burst out of that room, never again to return to the old normal. But as they got used to that new normal, they saw thousands of men, women and children being swept into the kingdom of God in a single day. And many more, perhaps a group of 20,000 in Jerusalem alone, joining them in subsequent weeks and months. Well, right now, we can't go on any long journeys, whether together or alone. Neither can we go out fishing in a boat if the mood takes us. For the time being, we can't gather together in one room, whether the doors are locked or not. And for us, Pentecost is not 10 days away, it's four, four weeks away still, falling as it does on the 31st of May. But, and this is the reason that um, I changed the plans for house group last week and embarked upon the prayer course instead of what we were planning to study, I have this really strong feeling that just like those first believers, we need to be preparing for Pentecost with persistent prayer. We need to focus on what God is saying, drawing close to him and praying for that outpouring of his, his Holy Spirit, not just on us, the church here in Brightlingsea and around the world, but also on the whole world. As I mentioned earlier, at the beginning of this service, there are more people going to church via the internet now than we're going to church physically before this all started. People are looking for God. People are looking for answers. People are searching the internet, wanting to find out how to pray, to find out about God. I think it's very significant, and I, I'm really pleased that Stephanie felt laid to, to jump into this Alpha Online course. And it's like we're running two courses at once. How crazy is that? But we've had people interested in taking part in it, people who've got no connection with the church. We've never had that before because people are looking. And that's why we need to be praying. Because those people are not so different to those crowds from all over the known world who were gathered in Jerusalem for the Feast of Pentecost. I nearly said the Feast of Pentecost. Got my teeth reading wrong. Because Pentecost for the Jews was, still is, the feast of the first ingathering, the beginning of the wheat harvest. And I think that's very significant. The Holy Spirit came and then when there was the first ingathering of new believers. 
Jesus said, unless a grain of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains just a grain of wheat. But if it falls to the ground and dies, then it produces a harvest of many grains. Jesus fell to the ground. He died. He was buried. He rose again. This Holy Spirit came. And now we see that there, there was this great outpouring of the Holy Spirit and this huge ingathering of new believers. Will we see that this Pentecost in Brightlingsea, in Britain, around the world? God can act without us praying. God can do whatever he wants. But it was one of the great preachers. And I, I, at the top of my head, I can't remember who it was. And I haven't got this written down. I think it might have been Charles Spurgeon says God never does anything redemptively except through prayer. So we need to be praying. The other significance of the Feast of Pentecost was and still is for the Jews, as well as the ingathering. It was also the commemoration of the giving of the law to Moses on Mount Sinai. The day when the Israelites became a holy nation dedicated to God. So I believe today we need to be praying for a new ingathering, a new harvest of people dedicated to God in this nation and around the world. We need to get ready for a fresh Pentecost in a few weeks time because we cannot simply go back to the old version of normal. Instead, when eventually our lockdown restrictions are lifted, we need to get ready to reach out and embrace the opportunities and the possibilities of a totally new sort of normal. Let's get praying. Thanks be to God.